they went to Convair and and they said, hey, wh what else can we do to, to have uh, to have these really fast interceptor jets in the Navy? And uh, somebody at Convair was pretty creative and said, hey, man, let's just uh, build you a jet seaplane. G'day and welcome everyone to episode number 36 of On The Step with That Mallard Guy. I'm your host, Dan Bolton. On The Step is all about float planes and flying boats. Are you a seaplane fanatic like me? If so, tell a friend about the show, share it on social media and review it on Apple Podcasts. We are currently going for 100 written reviews. That's the goal, folks. So if you haven't done so yet, get cracking. To get in contact with me, my email is thatmalladguy@hotmail.com, or you can follow me on Instagram and send me a message at thatmalladguy. I have some exciting news to share with you all. On the Step is now proudly sponsored by the Seaplane Pilots Association. I'm incredibly excited to have them on board to help On the Step grow into the big time show that it should be. The Seaplane Pilots Association is the perfect sponsor for On the Step. They are a not-for-profit organisation who put all their efforts back into the seaplane industry and their plans don't stop at the American border. Their goal is to grow into an international organisation protecting and promoting safe seaplane operations worldwide. I've spoke with director Steve McCorhey about the association on episode 29 and really look forward to their partnership into the future. Steve is the kind of guy who works day in and day out as the voice of all seaplane pilots. Also, to help On The Step grow into the future, I have created a Patreon account after some incredible feedback through the survey I created, as well as many requests from supporters of the show who want to contribute financially. With the support of these patrons, I will invest back into On The Step, ensuring it lives on for years to come. If you would like to support everyone's favorite seaplane podcast, go to the Patreon link in the show notes. It is much appreciated. But for now, folks, let's dive into the week of seaplane news headlines. To New York City and the big news story of the week where a single-engine seaplane skipped twice on the water of Long Island Sound while landing and crashed on top of a concrete pier in Queens, unfortunately killing a passenger and sending the pilot and another passenger to the hospital with serious injuries, New York Fire Commissioner Daniel Nigro said Sunday. The plane broke into pieces after crashing on a pier at Riversdown Drive and 158th Street around 3pm Sunday, the 4th of October, Nigro said at a news conference. Witnesses said the plane was travelling fast when it skipped on the water and hit the pier. Why it happened, we have no idea, he said. Someone riding a personal watercraft saw the crash and removed two men from the wreckage, whilst firefighters removed the woman who passed away. Nigro said. The personal watercraft rider and two other bystanders were treated for minor injuries at the scene but refused further medical attention. The pilot is a local resident who flies often from a hangar in the water behind his home. The FAA said the plane is a single-engine Cessna 182. It said they will release aircraft registration information after investigation confirms it at the scene. The NTSB said it is investigating but will not travel to the crash site. That article from the usatoday.com website. And our thoughts go out to the families involved in this accident. Over to Thailand and the team at Thailand Science Research and Innovation, TSRI, has successfully tested the NAX-5 seaplane. TSRI is also hoping to register the seaplane with the Civil Aviation Authority of Thailand so it can be commercially produced. Adachat Predagun, Deputy Director of TSRI, said Thailand's first two-seater single-wing seaplane was built using locally produced composite material. The plane has completed more than 200 hours of flying and was used in a reconnaissance mission as well as for training in flood rescue missions and sea patrol. Its maximum fuel capacity is 145 litres and consumes an average of 15 to 20 litres per hour. The NAX-5 can fly at speeds around 83 knots, though it can reach a maximum speed of 140 knots. The plane performed test flights safely and efficiently, though it needs further improvements to ensure its structure is in line with AC-90-89B standard. The aircraft structure has also had to undergo some adjustments, the landing gear has had to be brought up to a standard, and its takeoff performance has had to be improved. This article from the National Asia News Network. 
From the pictures I've seen, the NAX-5 looks like a combination of a Super Patrol and the Icon A5. Very exciting. To the Maldives, and an agreement has been signed between Adu International Airport, AIA, and National Airline, Maldivian, to begin seaplane operations between Adu City and Huvadu Atoll. The contract signing ceremony held at Adu City was attended by several cabinet ministers as well as parliament members. Speaking at the ceremony, the managing director of Island Aviation, which manages Maldivian Airline, said seaplane operations will begin between the target destinations within 45 days. Tourism activities and economic activities in the atolls will flourish as a result of the service, he added. The move aims to increase economic activities between the two large atolls. Discussions are also underway between the Economic Minister and Island Aviation to commence daily flights between Adu City and Fuva Mula. The operation of seaplanes at Adu International Airport was first contracted to private company Transmaldivian Airways. However, the company was not successful in implementing the project. That article from the avas.mv website. And finally, to the UK, where the project to build a flying replica of the famed Supermarine S5 seaplane in time to mark the 100th anniversary of its 1927 Schneider Trophy win is reported to be making good progress. Project instigator Will Hosey says that it's ahead of its timeline to fly in spring 2023. The original aircraft was fitted with a 24-litre Napier Lion Villa engine, which had its three banks of four cylinders arranged in broad arrow configuration. None of these very unusual engines survives in airworthy condition, so the full-size replica will be powered by a 210-horsepower Continental IO360, which should allow it to reach 130 knots. Build drawings and modifications have been produced by Technical Director John Reitman, working in close collaboration with the Light Aircraft Association, which has been extremely supportive of the project. The wings are coming on well, Hosey tells Pilot. Bill Penaluna has started the spars and the wings should be ready for skinning towards the end of the year. Then we'll be covering and painting them. Revised drawings for the floats were expected to be completed by 10th of September and work will then start on the fabrication near Devon. The 14-month build of the fuselage is scheduled to start in October 2021 and the team intends to be ready for the maiden flight around mid-2023. Chris Gottke has agreed to be the project's chief pilot. A graduate of ETPS, Chris is currently involved in F-35 development flying and remains current in the Sea Fury formerly attached to the Royal Navy Historic Flight. The S-35 replica was officially Approved as a charity project in July, which will help us better promote it, says Hosey. A total of £275,000 is required and we have currently raised 79000 Anyone wishing to follow this fascinating project or wanting to help through sponsorship or donation should visit www.supermarineseaplane.co.uk. That article from the pilotweb.aero website. And those folks were the Seaplane News Headlines. Okay, on to today's guest. You probably won't know the name Jason McDowell. He isn't a pilot, nor does he work in aviation, but he has one of the most incredible minds when it comes to recognising and identifying unique aircraft. What name you will likely recognise is his Instagram name, Cessna Tour. With nearly 100,000 followers and daily posts that go deep into the background and history of aircraft and their stories, Jason produces arguably the best aviation content around. On today's episode, Jason shares his top 10 unique seaplanes ever created, plus a bonus seaplane concept that will blow you away. This episode is best listened to whilst viewing the photos of the aircraft, shared both on my Instagram account, at that Mallard guy, and Jason's at Cessna Tour. But don't worry, if you don't have the photos, you will still get a kick out of this fun interview. Let's go back in time. Envisioning World War II era flying boats will turn black and white into colour, as we stand at the dock watching our floating aircraft before we board. Hearing the engines come to life, we'll gaze with amazement out the window as we climb up and on the step. Right engine is turning. 12% fuel. A light. Okay, welcome to On The Step. Jason McDowell, all the way from the States. How are you, mate? I'm feeling great. How are you? Very good, very good, mate. 
absolutely excited to have you on the step mate and uh to talk all things um random float planes and flying boats i'm, I'm really excited about this uh, episode now most people probably won't notice your name just from your your first and, and last name there but they will know you from uh your instagram page mate uh cessna tour i hope i pronounced that right it, i always kind of thought that was a bit of a french background to that but um mate can we start off by telling us a little bit about um you know what is going on in the background with your with your Instagram page there? Yeah, sure. So, um, I mean, it, it's uh, it's a, it's it's a project that's gotten bigger and bigger, but doesn't really have any specific end goal in sight. Um, I mean, this started off as just a a fun way to share strange aircraft photos and and uh, unique types of aircraft. Um, and uh, back in I think 2017 is when I really started to post. And at that time, I would just throw a photo up and maybe a sentence or two, and that was it. Uh, and then uh, the more I got into it, the more people wanted to know about the things I was posting. And so uh, it, it sort of developed into uh, a little project that uh, you know became a photo of an aircraft and the story behind it. I've always had an interest in writing. Um, and so as, as that sort of developed, it became kind of my daily exercise to... Uh, to, to try to get better at writing. And so just as a, you know, a competitive athlete might go and work out for an hour a day, I kind of viewed my writing in the same way on Instagram. Like uh, my daily goal is to have a nice long story about, well, long by Instagram standards about, uh, about some random airplane. So, so it became a, a, a sort of a daily goal to investigate something and, and write about it and, uh, and present it. And, uh, the discussions and the connections that came out of it and that still come out of it are, have just been fantastic. Yeah, mate. It's an, it's an incredible page. And I, like I mentioned to you a couple of weeks ago when we came up with this idea for this episode, you know, I, I regularly um, get a post by you and share it to other people. Um, I have other people share these posts to me. Like the effort that goes in behind creating a background for every photo that you post is is unbelievable mate like, where do you do your research and how do you come up with this amazing <laughs> statistics that i imagine are sometimes really hard to find yeah so i think it all started back in college um this would have been uh let's see 1999 through 2002 um and here in the u.s there's an organization called the national intercollegiate flying association or nifa and nifa is a non-profit organization that's been around since 1903 that sanctions uh, competitions among uh, aviation universities and aviation colleges around the country. And so uh, the way it works is uh, any college or university with uh, a flight program, or most of them anyway, have a flight team. And the flight teams compete uh, once in the fall and in all sorts of different regions around the country. And then they qualify for a big national competition in the spring. And the way that works is Every competition has uh, a pretty good number of events that take place both in the air and on the ground. So uh, the, the flying events would include uh, a couple of different precision landing events where uh, students are judged all the way around the pattern. They have to fly perfectly safely and, and then who can ever, whoever can land most uh, the closest to the target line wins. Uh, and then there's a navigation event. Uh, there's a pre-flight inspection event where an airplane is bugged and the kids need to find everything that's wrong with it. And uh, what I'm getting at here is there are also ground-based, knowledge-based events, and one of those is aircraft recognition, uh, just like they used to study and probably still do study uh, in the military. And so that was my event. That was my main – I competed in a couple of different things, but aircraft recognition was my main one. And uh, and so the, you, the way you compete in that is there's a presentation of about 60 slides that show an airplane or part of an airplane, and you have to figure out – who made it, what the model number is, and what the model name is uh, in 15 seconds. And uh, so to get good at that event, the, you, you really have to research the, the history and the background of each airplane. Uh, and then you have to understand why it maybe started out as one thing and then over the years developed into something else and get to know the visual differences and so on. And so that's when it all started for me, um, really digging down and investigating the uh, – all the details of various aircraft models, and it kind of stuck with me. And uh, so anyway, I did that through school, graduated uh, college, and uh, took a sort of a different track career-wise, and I needed an aviation fix. So uh, since graduation, I uh, have stayed involved with NIFA 
helping to judge and put the competitions on and, and write tests and uh and then and that stuck with me the whole time and, and then i started the instagram thing and uh, still getting my fix that way i never thought i'd speak to someone who competes in an aircraft identification uh course or you know like a, um a, a game <laughs> that's just it's incredible mate um now so how i guess uh, are you getting the aviation fix um through knife and now like you mentioned there you're still kind of being involved there um so what does that detail so, uh, you mean, how does, uh, what does it entail as far as judging goes? Yeah, just, uh, just what are your inputs now um, for, for riding those competitions and, and judging? I guess talk to us a little bit about how, how you're working now rather than a competitor um, versus someone who judges. Oh, it's fantastic. Yeah, so I competed for four years. Um, it was kind of a fairy tale story. Most of us got on the team um, very young. Like, we were all pretty new competitors and new uh, students. And, uh, and then we started off, I think our first year we did qualify for nationals and then, and then we got to nationals and, and we ended up being, uh, placing third in the country, which is a huge success. We loved it. And then the second year came around and we got the second place. And then, uh, the third year came around and we thought, okay, this is it. We're going to get the national championship. And, uh, and we walked away the second place a second time. So it was killing us. So then we really buckled down and. Uh, studied like crazy and worked really hard all year. And uh, the, the last year that we were eligible to compete is the year we won the national championship. So that was fantastic. Wow. Um, and then so now as a judge, the great thing is it's all the fun with none of the pressure. You're not you're not competing. You just you're there to put the competition on and to uh, and to judge the competition and uh, and see so a lot of fun that turns into a, a, a reunion as well. With, uh, your, your old friends that you see once a year. Uh, but uh, as far as the work goes, yeah, you have to be standing out at the runway for the uh, landing competitions to judge the distances and to judge uh, any unsafe moves that the, the kids make. They get penalized. Uh, let's see. There's a message trap event where the, the competitors fly at uh, 200 feet AGL and drop little uh, balsa wood containers and try to get them into barrels along the way. That, that, that event is, uh, I think, regarded as as much luck as it is skill. Like We have fun with it. And there's a flight planning event and, and some things that take place on the ground as well. So, so uh, judging entails uh, keeping track of all of those things. And the fun thing is that a competition, the competition is a week long. And as the students compete individually, they don't know how they did that day. They go back to the hotel and uh, they, they think they did well. They think they didn't do well, whatever. But nobody knows how well they did until the very last day. There's a banquet on Saturday. And at the banquet, is when the results are announced, one event by another. And uh, a team uh, will, everybody on the team will earn points for their team individually. And then the team with the most uh, cumulative points is the team that wins. So the, a lot of pressure all week long and, uh, and the reveal at the end of the week is always a good time. Yeah, a lot of pressure and a lot of suspense, mate. <laughs> I could wait all week and, and find out my results for sure. That would be pretty tough. Um, no, that's, in, that's incredible, mate. It's, you know, I just feel like those types of things don't happen around where, where I am or in Australia. They probably do in the background somewhere, but I've certainly never been involved in anything by the sound of that. That's, that sounds incredible. Um, so you started Cessna Tour about you know, th- three or four years ago and, and kind of putting out these posts. Um, how has the page developed and, and how are you going with, with your goal? You know, I don't have any specific goal in mind. I, uh, but yeah, the growth was pretty huge. I think in 2017, I had something like 1,700 followers, and then uh, I, I don't know. I'd have to look back at the numbers, but every year it's almost I think doubled or more. And uh, but but no, there's no specific goal in mind. Um, you know, there are times when I when I look and, and read about uh, other people on Instagram and and on other platforms, and uh, you know, you read about these 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 influencers who are into fashion or they're into modeling or, or thing and then they make like thousands of dollars per post and then they did they don't write much they just stand there with their, their <laughs> little you know their thing of lipstick or their 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 plate of food and uh, the sponsors just are throwing money at them so on one hand it's easy to kind of get down and you know i feel like man what's this all for you know what's the what's the point if i'm if these people are making three grand a post you know i could have an airplane in a couple of months but but then i have to remind myself that man the, the stuff that has come out of this the intangibles are so much cooler than that i mean i I've, I've met so many interesting people and i've had so many cool opportunities um that i never would have had otherwise 
a, a tour at Pilatus over in Switzerland. I mean, I flew over on my own money, but uh, it was amazing to see that. And then a good friend of mine over there took me flying uh, through the Swiss Alps. It was 170. Um, got a tour at Horton of that cool flying wing they've got over in Germany. So, uh, so the payoff has been these opportunities that have been unlocked, and it's been fantastic. Yeah, I guess that the issue for you, mate, is that all these models here are advertising lipstick and whatnot. Um, those companies still exist. A lot of the, the companies and the aircraft that you um, put out there, they don't exist anymore, so there'd be no one to sponsor. Um, That's a good point, yeah. yeah exactly. Not too many PZL Belfagors are selling these days. So. Yeah. Now, mate, how did you come up with the name Cessna Tour? And, and does that uh, have any implications with Cessna at all? Uh, so... Almost no thought went into it. Uh, I mean, at the time, it was like 2016 or 2017, and I just needed an account. So I just, uh, the first thing that came to mind was uh, uh, a conversation I had with uh, an old friend who uh, retired from flying A330s, uh, transatlantic routes mainly. And uh, he, he and I were talking about that, and he was just uh, offhand mentioning a flight where he was flying up in the flight levels, and he looked down and he saw. Um, a general aviation pilot is bopping around having a good time on a Sunday morning in a small airport. And he referred to the, to the pilot as a Cessna tour, like as a, as a little, uh, a, a general term for any general aviation pilot out having fun. And, uh, it kind of stuck with me. I just thought it was funny. Uh, in hindsight, I would have picked a different name because like it or not, I am at least indirectly representing Cessna with that name. And, uh, I'm very cognizant of that. So, in the end, it's been a it's been a good thing because it's forced me to scale back on the profanity and present myself in a reasonably professional manner because uh, I don't want to do the name you know I want to do the name justice I don't want to uh, I don't want Cessna to get angry and come after me and try to get the try to get the name yanked off so um, yeah I would probably have chosen a different I would choose a different name at this point but uh, but fortunately Cessna hasn't gotten angry with me and we, we're on good terms so hopefully that continues. Yeah, absolutely. And last one about the Instagram page, the picture, mate, that you use on the front. That's a bit, it's a bit crazy, really, isn't it? It is, and I wish I knew who created it. It was just one of those random files I had floating around on my computer, and uh, it made me laugh. It looks like some vintage Batman guy. And, uh, uh, and I, I think it, it, it is a little bit fitting because a lot of what I post is both old and bizarre. And so you've got this old, bizarre Batman-looking guy, and I thought, I think it sort of goes with the theme of the page. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like it's like Batman from the, like, 1800s. I love it. Um, it's epic. <laughs> it is. Now, mate, um, let's let's get to talk about um, float planes. Now, the reason why I got you on the show is, I, I, like I said, I love your posts, and, you know, all these interesting f- seaplanes came up that you were posting about, and I was just like, you know, I'd love to get you on and talk. Give me, give me say, your top 10 most unique seaplanes that have ever been built um so we got in contact and um you've done a bit of background work mate and you've come up with a list you've got 10 in the list now plus a bonus concept as well so why don't we jump straight into the list now and talk about uh, what you've got there for number 10 right so um on the list of 10 they're they're in a bit of an order but uh, in terms of, I think, coolness, but uh, but even number 10 is a pretty cool machine. So the number 10, I went with the uh, Dornier Sea Star, and there are multiple Dorniers on this list, and I stand by that because they made some pretty cool stuff over the years. Um, what stands out to me when you look at this thing, the Sea Star, uh, it's a modern airplane, uh, carries, I want to say like 12 people, uh, composite fuselage, two PT6s on the top, but despite the modern elements of this thing, it still has the layout of their 1930s era flying boats. And what I mean is it's got an uninterrupted wing up on top. And then the fuselage has these, uh, um, I think they're known as sponsons. Well, you probably know better than I do. Um, These uh, things that stick out from either side for stability. And that enables them to uh, eliminate the wingtip floats that stick down toward the end of the wings. so it provides stability, but it's really beefy. It also provides a place for them to put fuel, and uh, it's, it's a really clever design. That, uh, and then they've stuck with it from 1930s all the way until today. And the Sea Star is currently, I think, technically in production. Uh, they're marketing it for things like uh, corporate transport, uh, air ambulance, uh, military platform, and so on. 
and uh, I think they've sold, I don't know how many they've sold, I think they've only sold uh, one or two of the brand new ones, um, but uh, they're trying like heck to sell uh, sell more of them. Yeah, now, this, this aircraft has been around for a little bit though, hasn't it? Maybe 20 years or something? Yeah, they had an initial version, I want to say like, it was like the late 80s or 90s or something like that, and um, they, they only built uh, a few of them, I think, at the time, and uh, now they're trying to revitalize the idea. So, you know, anything that adds uh, variety to the to the global fleet, fleet of airplanes, I think, is a good thing. So I really wish them luck, and I hope it takes off. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm, I'm trying to get in contact uh, with Dornier to try and um, find someone to talk more about this aircraft in depth. So for those listening, um, you know, keep an eye on that space, and hopefully we can track someone down and, and get them on the show and, and talk more about it. Because like you said, Jason, it is a... It's a very unique aircraft, but bringing back the um, the 1930s styling um, really, you know, makes it um, stand out a lot. I think, and with two push-pull PD6s on top there, centerline thrust, um, yeah, it'd be interesting to see how that goes. Yeah, I think they should uh, bring you up to uh, Germany and uh, let you fly one around, mate. Um, yeah, I, I like what you're saying there. That's that sounds pretty good. I mean, how how else can we know how effective this airplane is <laughs> exactly. if, if if we don't get yeah, we the can, Mallard guy up there to try it out? We can't just trust Dornier. What? No, <laughs> that doesn't no. make sense. I I would never buy a seaplane unless it has been tested and proven <laughs> by the Mallard guy. <laughs> Thank you very much, Jason. That's much appreciated. Uh, all right, on to number nine on the list. Number nine, uh, if I had the list to do over again, I might I might choose something different. This is a silly one, uh, but it, it's kind of a fun one. It's called the, the Fly Nano, one word. And it is this tiny little single-seat electric seaplane. And it's just, it's kind of cool looking. It looks like it would be a lot of fun where you show up to maybe a, a friend's place up on a lake somewhere. And if they had a couple of these parked out uh, on the shore, it, it's this tiny little thing. It weighs um, uh, 154 pounds or 70 kilograms empty. Uh, and the max takeoff weight is uh, far, like more than twice that. Um, but uh, so it's like an aviation version of a, of a jet ski. You hop in and you go mess around and, and, and have fun at uh, slow speeds and low altitudes. And, uh, and, and, that, and that's it. Being electric, it's probably uh, very, very quiet. Um, and uh, it only does 65 knots. But, uh, but the, looking at the thing, it's, it's, it's a cool design. There's the center, um, the center float upon which you sit. And then uh, it's almost a biplane design where there's a lower wing and an upper wing. And they're joined at the end. So it's like a box section wing that's that's slightly swept. It's just the coolest looking little thing. And, and I mean, it, you wouldn't be surprised to see uh, to see it used in a James Bond film, uh, except it's probably way too slow for, for, for you know, any sort of real action. But uh, yeah, so it, it's kind of a silly, fun uh, addition to the list, uh, the, the Fly Nano electric seaplane. Definitely fun. Hey, like you said, it looks just like a... Um, it looks like it's missing a lot of stuff, to be honest. Like, there's no, doesn't it look like there's a, a windscreen on it or anything? Um, I love how the wing comes up. It, it kind of allows for a lot more of turning, I imagine, on the water. So I imagine you could do some really steep turns on the water there. But yeah, it looks like it's missing a lot of stuff. But it, all in all, it looks like a lot of fun. I think, um, as you mentioned, go down to the, to the lake at a mate's house or something like that, and there's just three or four of these, and you guys would just go out there and and just like jet skis, you'd just be tearing this thing around, but getting airborne as well. So I don't think it's uh, it's your kind of everyday cruiser to go lake hopping. Um, but yeah, absolutely very unique for sure. And for the listeners uh, it, it, who aren't looking at the photo right now, it isn't a fully open cockpit. So there is no wind protection, at least on, in the images that I see. And so it's surprising that it comes from Finland because I feel like the, 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 the season in which you can use this thing up in Finland must be like a few weeks long, given the temperatures they've got up there. So uh, kind of surprising that it comes from such a cold uh, climate, but uh, but I bet it's a fun few weeks when they do fly it. Yeah, nah, spot on. And, and again, we, we can't know whether it's a good airplane or not because we don't have the uh, Mallard guy <laughs> seal of approval. So, you know, until, until Mallard guy is invited up there to fly one, uh, the jury's out. Absolutely. Get me to Finland ASAP. <laughs> um, I need a holiday, basically. Um, <laughs> Mate, number eight on the list. This is a, a a bit more of a common known aircraft that I never knew um, had a chance to go on floats. Yeah, well, I mean, it should come as no surprise that I choose a Cessna for some number, some part of the list here. And uh, and and for number eight, I went with the the Cessna Skymaster 
on floats. Uh, and some people call it uh, the Seamaster as a nickname. Uh, but that's really all it is. It's, it's a Skymaster, the, a 336, which originally had fixed landing gear uh, that one guy put on floats, I think, back in like the 70s or 80s. I want to say the 80s to see what kind of a float plane it would make. And uh, as it turns out, it makes a pretty horrible float plane because uh, uh, I wouldn't have guessed this. You probably would, being that you're an actual uh, seaplane pilot. But the, uh, the the spray from the uh, from the floats flows back directly into the rear propeller of the Skymaster, and it just chews through propellers. Um, and I, I forget, I read a, a firsthand account of it at one point. I want to say it, it would like ruin the propeller within like 20 hours of, of flight time. Um, so it was that bad it was, in terms of uh, killing the rear propeller. It was not fast. It cruised at 120 knots, burning 24 gallons per hour or 91 liters per hour. Um, but uh, an intriguing design, and it's fun to see something so unique uh, put on floats. Um, the, the one that was put on floats was uh, quickly returned to wheels, and uh, since then no one else has, has uh, dared to put a Skymaster on floats. <laughs> Uh, and I can understand why. I mean, looking at that back uh, propeller there and back engine there, for those who don't know the actual aircraft, it's a push-pull. It's like the similar to the 337, but just as Jason mentioned with fixed gear. Um, I mean, that back propeller there is almost at the rear of the floats. Like these are just a set of like, something like whipline floats or something. And, and that back propeller, yeah, it's almost at, at the water rudders. It's so far back. I don't know what they were thinking. <laughs> to you know where was that spray gonna go you know what i mean um i have seen one concept uh, a drawing uh concept only of a uh, something that the designer called a duck master and the duck master is uh, a sky master with one giant central float like the grumman duck of world war i guess a little bit before world war ii era and um, the thing looks absurd. I'll have to post about it at some point to show everyone. But, uh, of course, that never reached production. Yeah. Well, I guess that makes more sense because at least with a central float, the spray is going to go out to the left and the right mm-hmm. of the fuselage. Whereas this one here, though, with two floats, it's, you know, the inner sides of the uh, of the floats there are just going to be creating spray right directly into the propeller. Like, there's no wonder they only lasted 20 hours. Um, it's almost like the best way to fly this thing would be Get it going on the step with the front engine, and then just as you as you're on the step, just turn that second engine on the back there for a bit of extra power to take off. I mean, maybe it was designed and built by a guy who sells propellers, and that was his <laughs> his idea to to sell more of them. I don't know exactly, yeah, or maybe prove how um, how much you know they can stand up against the water, but uh, really they didn't, and now he's not selling propellers anymore. <laughs> right, um, mate. On to number seven, and this, once again, is another famous aeroplane that um, has been put onto floats. Yeah, so the Supermarine Spitfire, one of the most beautiful airplanes ever built, uh, was uh, at one point uh, put on floats uh, during uh, during the World War II era. Uh, now, you hear that, and it's like, that that's insane. Like, why, why would, what does Supermarine uh, have, what business do they have dealing with float planes? But... Uh, if you think about it, back during the 20s and 30s, Supermarine had uh, some really uh, fast float planes, and they had a lot of success in the Schneider Cup, that uh, that trophy race that occurred back then where they would race these insanely powerful float planes. I mean, it, of course, I haven't seen footage of that because it was the 20s and 30s, and there weren't many GoPros back then, but I've got to <laughs> think that those Schneider Cup races were like, it was like Reno with float planes, these ridiculously powerful airplanes that were... Uh, cranking around a, a race course and they just happen to have giant pontoons on them so what a cool event but but my point is that supermarine had some success back there and so when various militaries were trying to figure out how to hide their airplanes um and 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 have them battle ready um norway was one of them and supermarine came around and and, and suggested well why don't you put some spitfires on floats and so they tried it, and they, they would hide a Spitfire in the fjords there, uh, kind of tucked between mountains on the water. Um, and uh, it never really went anywhere. The concept was uh, sort of shelved uh, when Norway surrendered during the, the war. Uh, and But they did try a second time. Supermarine tried a second time uh, with three Spitfires around the Greek islands. Um, and uh, the interesting thing there is, is that they, they built these things, and they, they stationed them out around these Greek islands, 
And um, they were last seen in Egypt, and nobody really knows what happened to them. And so you have these Spitfire seaplanes that, yeah, they were probably returned to wheels, and they went on to, to fight various battles elsewhere. But but in the, in the back of your mind, you got to think, man, maybe there are some Spitfire float planes just stashed away somewhere in some underground warehouse in Egypt or something. And, man, what a, what a find that would be. That would be fantastic. Absolutely. And if they need test flying, Jason... You know who's ready to be. Well, we know who to go to. Exactly, yeah. Yes. Yep. yep. With all my um, single seat, low wing Spitfire time, um, I'll be the right guy to pick for that, for sure. You've got my vote, absolutely. Yep. Yep. Now, uh, how do we not think that the Supermarine Spitfire was going to be a float plane when they've got Marine in their name, in the company name? (laughs) That's a good point, yeah. I never picked up on that. fitting. Um, But at least, I guess, you know, being a single seat seaplane... Uh, you know you're not in for any tourism work, are you really? Probably not. No, no. you'd have to you'd have to build a couple of those two seat versions to, to yeah. really make uh, some money, and even then you'd come out way behind. I think. Yeah, exactly. Um, now that's that's a very interesting one. Um, we've had someone mention that before as a dream seaplane to fly. So um, hopefully we can find one and then uh, maybe put that person in the seat. I can't remember who said that, but um, yeah, absolutely would be a dream and and and, and almost. I wonder what it would be like to be a fighter with float planes, you know, with for the floats down underneath you. That, that'd make it interesting. Yeah, I think it would be frustrating if you have to go up against uh, land plane versions because they'd be so much quicker uh, without all that drag. Yeah, and really just the landing on the water aspect, how much of an advantage was that? Yeah, I don't know. But like they said, they're probably, you know, protecting some areas where there's no runways, so must have been needed, obviously. Now on to number six, mate. This uh, this is an absolute weapon of a of a flying boat. Tell us all about this one. Oh, number six. It's a crazy one. The Shinmaiwa US two Japanese uh, flying boat uh, designed for uh, like search and rescue and maritime patrol duties. It's huge. This thing. It uh, it's a ninety five thousand pounds, forty three thousand kilograms. Uh, it uses this four engines, the same engines and props as the C one thirty J. Wow. So if you can imagine a C-130 float plane, that's kind of the size that you're that we're talking about here, this massive thing. Um, but despite being so huge and so heavy and so massive, uh, the thing can fly as slowly as 48 knots. That is insane. It, it would be spooky to fly something that big that slowly. And the way they do it is they have a fifth engine, uh, a jet engine in the fuselage. It's a 1,300 horsepower jet engine. And the only job of this jet engine is to pressurize uh, a system called a boundary layer control system, or BLC. And the BLC system, it ducts um, the, this high-pressure air out onto the wings and out of the tail to all the control surfaces. And uh, high-pressure air flows out of little nozzles over all the control surfaces, uh, energizing the boundary layer and uh, delaying the the separation of the airflow and delaying a stall. So uh, so by by flipping that engine on and by uh, charging that system with compressed air, um, it almost creates an artificial headwind over each control surface, enabling really slow flight. And so I guess at that point you just really hope that that engine doesn't fail, and then uh, you're all set. That is insane. Do you know how much of an advantage that uh, provides in knots? Uh, I only know that it enables the thing to fly 48 knots, which is slower than a Cessna 170, um, which is saying something. Uh, But it it also results in some pretty impressive takeoff and landing performance, which I think is probably the main reason they developed that system. It can get get off the water uh, at its maximum weight in 920 feet or 280 meters. Um, So, again, this is... 95,000 pounds, 43,000 kilograms. It's like an airliner, a small one, um, and it needs less than 1,000 feet to get off the water. So that, I think, is the, the main reason. And they've also developed a really unique hull system that enables it to uh, to tackle some pretty rough water. Uh, I guess it is able to negotiate uh, nine-foot-high or three-meter-high waves that are a third of its own height. And so it can, it can muscle through this insane surf and still get up and off the water just fine now i do not have experience in that kind of swell mate so i might have to leave that to the experts on this one i think 
Oh, no, no. We need to get you up in one. Absolutely. <laughs> we need to fly over to Japan and we need that, that seal of approval on this airplane. Maybe I'll take the co-pilot seat on this one. How's that sound? There you go. Perfect. <laughs> now, it's got uh, a, a pretty large passenger seating capacity as well. It does. Well, I don't think any have been used for pure passenger ops just yet, but they're, of course, marketing it for anything and everything. And one of those uh, options is a pure passenger version, which would carry uh, around 40 passengers. Um, uh, and they're also marketing it for uh, things like uh, disaster relief and ocean surveillance and, uh, and even an aerial fighter firefighter platform. So to see these things out fighting fires would be fantastic. I would probably pay money to see that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, now, this is an updated version of an, an older Shinmaiwa. It was. The very first ones um, were known as the PS-1 and the US-1. They flew back in the 60s. Um, I think they built about 40 of them, used mostly by the Japan... Oh, it's not the Army or Navy. It's like this uh, self-defense force, I think they call it. Um and uh, the very first ones had no landing gear at all, so they were uh, pure seaplanes and not amphibians. Uh, and then over the years, they've kept at it and kept uh, modifying them. And uh, the, the, this most recent version, the US-2, is uh, just packed with, uh, with, with technology. I think it's, if I recall, yeah, it's fly-by-wire. It's got pressurization in the cabin. Um, and then those, those uh, pretty up-to-date C-130J engines. Um, so, yeah, they've, they've kept at it, and hopefully they see some success. Awesome, mate. That's yeah, that's an epic machine. Um, let's move on to uh, number five, and we're going back in time again. We are now. Let's 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 throw this question out there and see if anybody can get it. Uh, I wonder if anybody listening can think of an airplane that uh, has vectored thrust that vectors its thrust upward for takeoff and landing, where, <laughs> where the, the 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 air that it that it that it pushes back to take off, all of that thrust is is pointed up at the sky. For takeoff and landing, I don't think I would have gotten that if somebody had asked me that that little trivia question. But in fact, there is one. It is this number five. It is the Dornier Do 26 seaplane. And uh, when you look at it, it's a high wing seaplane. It's a pretty good sized machine. Um, I don't have the weights or the wingspan or anything. But um, if it were passenger, it would probably carry you know, maybe 15, 20 people. Um, it has four engines. The engines are uh, both pusher. There are, there are two pullers that face forward and two pushers that face backward. And each pair, the left pair and the right pair, uh, share one nacelle. So um, so from the front or from directly behind, it looks like a two-engine airplane. But in fact, there is a front propeller and a rear propeller on each side. Um, now, about the thrust vectoring, what they found, uh, and, and the, the that, that Skymaster person would have been wise to study this they they learned that uh rear facing engines on seaplanes are prone to being chewed up uh the propellers are by uh by spray from the water and so dornier's solution to this is they had um a setup where the rear facing propellers were able to angle upward 10 degrees um to keep them clear of the water spray uh, and so when you see photos of them operating on the water, the rear two, the two rear engines are aimed slightly upward to keep those propellers clear. And then when you see photos of the airplane in flight, uh, the engines are tilted back down into their fully fared position um, where it's most aerodynamically efficient. Yeah, that's insane. Hey, so it sounds like some of like almost like fighter jet technology, the way they're kind of vectoring that thrust. Um <laughs> I guess if, if you look at it as well, when it, when it kind of is climbing onto the step, maybe having that little upward um, vector actually actually um, kind of levels out a little bit with that high nose attitude on the step. But um, yeah, like you said, that the uh, the guy with the 336 might have had to do a bit of, a bit better research and, and realise this because um, yeah, those props are very much prone to getting some spray um, through them as well. Um, and, and some different engines types as well. I've never heard of these being of used before. Yeah, very, very German uh, engine choice. They, they used uh, four 600-horsepower, two-stroke, six-cylinder diesel engines. Uh, so I, I just I want to hear the thing. I mean, uh, not, <laughs> unfortunately, none exist today, but it must have sounded insane between, between four diesel engines, two-stroke diesel engines, uh, and the combination of pusher and puller props. It must have sounded insane. 
Um, but sadly, none, 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 none of the DL 26s survived today. They, there's one that's currently underwater off the coast of Norway and, uh, another one that, uh, was in the same place, but they've salvaged some parts. Like I think maybe the cockpit and part of the fuselage and those parts are now on display in a museum in Norway, but, but no, no airplanes exist anymore. So, uh, we're left with only photos. Yeah. It's a, it's an interesting photo as well. Uh, on to number four, mate. This one is another epic seaplane. Yeah, it's the Beriev BE-200, a pretty cool Russian design. that uh, It's based off of a, an early Beriev seaplane from the mid-'80s called the A-40. Um, so Beriev built this A-40 back in the 80s to propose a, a military jet that happens to be a seaplane. Uh, it never really went anywhere. I think they just built the one, but Beriev was pretty convinced that the that the concept uh, has merit. And so um, they developed the smaller BE-200 as a more modern um, jet seaplane. Now, size-wise, it's very similar to an Embraer 170. It's a uh, very similar weight, even some similar speeds um, uh, with two big turbofans up on top and uh, what appears to be a pretty stable um, uh, design on the water. Uh, and they, they, they're marketing this thing to do a lot of different things, uh, freight, air ambulance, search and rescue, um, some anti-submarine warfare. And uh, as well, they've uh, developed a firefighting version, which uh, like the, those Canadair 415 scoopers, it, it's able to touch down in the water and refill the tanks so that it can drop the water on, 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 on forest fires without having to come to a stop. Uh, and so, you know, with, with climate change being what it is and, and um, forest fires popping up all over the place, um, the B-200, I, I think they've built about 17 of them to date, and they've been used uh, all over the place, Italy, Portugal, Indonesia, Greece, Israel, uh, mainly fighting fires in all of those places. And, uh, and uh, Barry, I was trying really hard to update it with... Um, uh, westernized, for lack of a better term, engines and uh, and, and certification, so that uh, Europe and the U.S. and Australia can import them, but they haven't quite made it yet. Yeah, well, I heard a little rumor um, in Australia here with uh, CASA, the Civil Aviation Safety Authority. Um, they may have actually included this one um, recently onto their kind of types in in country uh, register there, so. There may be a chance that uh, we will see this um, uh, incredible, you know, turbo fan flying boat um, coming to Australia to help with our fire efforts. Um, so, yeah, watch this space as well. I reckon, you know, that that'd be very exciting to see. Oh man, fingers crossed! Again, anything that uh, that uh, that adds more variety to the to the aviation fleet these days is uh, is a good thing. So hopefully that uh, pans out. Especially seaplanes, mate. Especially seaplanes. Yes. Yes. Now, um, mate, I know how much you love competitions, so we are now down to the top three, the top three, so we're in the, the medal uh, receiving positions here, so coming in at number three for the bronze medal of uh, Jason McDowell, Cessna Tours, 10 most unique flying boats and float planes, uh, take it away, Jason, number three. All right, number three, uh, back to an old favorite uh, manufacturer, Dornier, with the DO24 ATT turboprop. Uh, so the DO-24 is a seaplane that flew back uh, in 1937. They built uh, almost 300 of them back in the day with uh, uh, piston engines. And um, they're big engines. They're about 1,100 horsepower engines. And, uh, you know, so they were used all over the place back uh, in the 30s and 40s. And, uh, uh, you know, the, it has the same trademark Dornier design of the the, tall, the high uninterrupted wing uh, held high above the fuselage and, um, and two sponsons sticking out from the fuselage for stability. Um, so, you know, it was a, it was a great footnote in, in aviation and in seaplane history, and it was a, it was a cool airplane. Well, then it was re- resurrected. The grandson of Claude Dornier, Iron Dornier, um, decided to kind of pull a Mike Patey, and he took this this old one and he, he modernized it with PT sixes and with uh, a state of the art cockpit and uh, and some modern systems. Uh, and he cr- he took this old World War II era seaplane and modernized it in such a way that it was able to be used on a round the world mission to support UNICEF, which provides uh, humanitarian and, and aid to children around the world. 
And uh, it was, I think it was back in 2004, he used this airplane as uh, sort of the traveling home base of this mission to, to assist UNICEF with, with their efforts. Um, and uh, I guess it performed pretty well. Um, it's, you, don't, you don't read a whole lot about the, the details of that mission, but uh, you can only imagine what, a, what an adventure it would be in a, in a big seaplane like that that, uh, that has the, the benefit of uh, modern turboprop reliability. And I think that's my favorite thing about it is you've got this vintage airplane that's been updated with with really cool modern engines. And if anyone can speak to that, I think it's you. Yeah, I was going to say that uh, that rings a bell on my front as well, mate. Um, still flying around in 70-year-old aircraft. This one pops us by uh, another 10 years. But um, yeah, th- three turboprops up the top. It almost looks like some sort of praying mantis, doesn't it, with its tail up. You know, it's just an incredible fuselage that kind of slopes upwards at the back there and how cool is that little gunner turret that they've turned into a little viewing station up on the tail yeah the the tail and uh where there used to be a turret for a machine gun yeah it's got the uh a big clear dome a plexiglass dome that you can go up and and enjoy the view Uh, and then there's another one down on the main fuselage so Last fall, I, I went over to uh, Germany and Switzerland uh, just for a little solo vacation, and uh, I visited uh, the Dornier Museum in Fregerschaften, Germany, and I really wanted to, to go see the, the DO-24 uh, turboprop, um, but sadly, it was locked away in a, in a hangar off-site from the museum, and it was a Sunday, so I, I couldn't even try to bribe one of, the, one of the workers to take me over there, which I was fully prepared to do. Um, but uh, sadly, it, it got damaged, the airplane, in, in 2015, um, and there's pretty spectacular video of it on YouTube uh, doing a touch-and-go in, in Austria where it struck uh, some kind of object, they think maybe a log, just under the surface of the water. And uh, So it was at landing speed, which must have been, I don't know, 100 knots or so, um, and uh, in the length in, in two airplane lengths, it spun a hundred. It, it spun 270 degrees and came to a stop. So you can imagine the force that that must have been placed on it. Um, but all that really happened was, and it's a big problem, but it uh, it suffered a puncture in the hull. Um, so it's damaged. It's not flying, but I think it's probably pretty repairable. So you know, fingers crossed, they'll uh, they'll fix that hole in the fuselage and maybe uh, bring it over to Oshkosh one of these years. Yeah, absolutely. And like you mentioned there incredible footage on youtube that just shows it flat spinning on the water it shows those sponsors really do help a lot with with that i would not have you know imagined that that's how the it would have resulted with such a violent spin but um yeah incredible the way that it um, kind of just stays flat the whole time but yeah what an, an amazing aircraft that'll be certainly one on the bucket list to, to check out in the future well, maybe when you win the lotto you can go and uh, and, and, and buy it from them and use it as uh, as your own personal seaplane I, I always think that, like, you you win the lotto, you're going to go out and get... But these guys probably, they've probably got the equivalent to the lotto and they've choose, chosen not <laughs> to do it and uh, to fix it up. So there must be something, you know, behind the scenes happening there. But oh, what I love also about that story is that, you know, he created this three-engine turboprop and used it for some really positive um, work, like with the humanitarian stuff, um, you know, with the aid to children worldwide. So... Um, you know, real positive message out of that as well. Yeah, and, and UNICEF, I understand, is a heck of an organization. I, I learned about it first uh, with this, the TV series, the BBC series, Long Way Around, uh, which was a, a motorcycle trip around the world with uh, Ewan McGregor and uh, Charlie Berman. And uh, they, they, they got on a couple of BMW motorcycles and rode um, all the way around the world. And, and, and since then, they've done a couple of other trips. The most recent one was just uh, unveiled, was just released on, uh, I think, Apple TV, uh, where they travel from uh, Argentina all the way up to the U.S. on a couple of motorcycles. But they did it in support of UNICEF as well. So somehow UNICEF does amazing work, and at the same time they attract these amazing adventures through, with, with uh, really cool machines along the way. Yeah, absolutely. All righty, to number two, the silver medal for Cessna Tours, 10 most unique seaplanes out there. And this one is another... I mean, they're all amazing, really, aren't they? But this one is just... Completely incredible, I reckon. Tell us about number two, mate. It is. So number two is the Martin P6M Seamaster. It is this immense four-engine jet seaplane that was developed. It was first flown in 1955, and it was built to be a uh, strategic nuclear bomber uh, back in the day. 
it uses four J75 engines. The, it was the, it's effectively the same engine that uh, the 707 and DC-8 used. Huge airplane, 190,000 pounds, which is about 86,000 uh, kilograms, heavier than any 737, almost the, the weight of a 757. They, they built a number of these. Uh, I don't have the number written down. I want to say like seven examples or five examples or something. Um, but it, it was th- this this crazy strategic jet seaplane bomber that could do Mach 0.9 at low altitudes um, and could fly up to 50,000 feet or 15,000 meters. Just a crazy performance. Um, and uh, they had the, the several examples flying. They tested them, and, and it was uh, the program wasn't going great. It was over budget. It was behind schedule. And uh, and eventually the U.S military realized that uh, nuclear submarines were a more effective way to position and deliver um, these these nuclear weapons if needed. So uh, so later the the entire program, the entire Seamaster uh, program was was brought to an end and tragically every single example was scrapped. They, not not one exists. So nobody now can go and, and see one in person at a museum somewhere, which is just, uh, it, it just makes you sick. Yeah, that's, that's shocking. This, this thing is absolutely amazing. So it would have been incredible to see it, um, you know, in, in a museum somewhere. If they could keep the spruce goose alive, surely they could have kept this alive as well. Um, but not to be, yeah. Oh, just one of them. Yeah. Um, but an absolute deservant number two, mate. Um, yeah. A nuclear bomber seaplane. That's just incredible. Yeah. Now, um, now on to the gold medal position, Jason. Um, this one I've I've seen regularly on posts on uh, Cessna tour. Um, it's it's an incredible machine as well. It's it's almost like a fighter aircraft on the water. Tell us about um, the gold medal position, mate. Number one. Number one is the Convair F2Y Sea Dart. And, uh, you know, to, to really get what the sea dart is all about, we kind of have to go back in time to the 1950s. And uh, back then, uh, the U.S. Navy was just getting into to, to some pretty hot jets. They, they, uh, the, sea, the, the, the propeller era had kind of come and gone for carrier-based uh, fighters. Um, you know, you weren't seeing uh, Bearcats and Corsairs flying as much anymore. And in the 50s, you started seeing... Uh, uh, some straight wing jets and, uh, and, and they were doing okay. They were, I mean, it wasn't great, but they were flying off of carriers and, uh, it was, it, they were able to launch and recover these straight wing jets reasonably well off of carriers back in the fifties. Well, of course the Navy wanted more speed and more capability, more altitude from their fighter jets and from the interceptors. And so, um, they looked over at what the air force was doing and they saw the air force had these, uh, fantastic, um, Convair F-102 Delta dagger, interceptors um but uh but they were pretty hot jets they they had a ridiculously high uh, approach speed and landing speed and uh relatively fragile landing gear they were in no way optimized for naval operations and so the, the people in charge at the, in, the, in the navy they they really wanted uh to see these fast jets operate from a carrier but they weren't confident it was going to happen. So I think as a backup plan, they went to Convair and, and they said, hey, wh- what else can we do to, to, have, uh, to have these really fast interceptor jets in the Navy? And uh, somebody at Convair was pretty creative and said, hey, man, let's just uh, build you a jet seaplane. And uh, Navy was like, cool, man, hook me up. And so they, they did. They, they essentially took the concept of the F-102 and they designed it with a hull that could float on the water, and they raised the engine intakes and exhausts up over the wing, and they uh, they created this uh, these these two skis that would uh, extend from the the hull uh, for takeoff and landing, and they created five of these uh, sea dart jet fighters that were based on the water. Yeah, it's incredible. How would they um, like? Obviously, they're landing around a carrier still are they and like would they get picked up out of the water or anything or how did that work so they had a lot of theories there they could station them at, at bases that lacked um that lacked uh, flat land like earlier we mentioned the fjords in norway i mean you could ha- you could station these things uh, uh in areas like that um but they even got really creative and they they began talking about designing uh submarines that could surface 
and uh, deploy up to three of these sea dart jets um, from the submarine on the surface of the water uh, as a as a submersible aircraft carrier. Uh, that of course never happened. Kind of tragic. I'd love to see it. Um, but they never really got much beyond that as far as actual planning of how they would use them because as it happened, um, the development of, of, of carrier-borne fighters and interceptors uh, caught up with and passed the concept of seaplane interceptors. So uh, ultimately, of course, we were able to, uh, to find ways to uh, create fast jets that could also travel very slowly to get onto and off of these carriers. And with that came the demise of the, of the Sea Dart program. Uh, one of them was lost in an in-flight breakup, but uh, fortunately, the other four uh, were saved and not scrapped for once, and they survive at museums to this day all around the U.S., yeah, wow, that's incredible. And this thing could also land on snow, ice, or, or sand as well. <laughs> they, they they claimed that uh, you always need to take off from water, but they, they claimed that in, in a pinch you could actually land this thing using its skis on snow, ice, sand, or, and I quote, anything except a concrete runway, which makes you wonder, did they try the concrete runway thing <laughs> and it just went really badly and that, that's what they know won't work? <laughs> so yeah. I wonder what the story is behind that, but... Uh, but yeah, it apparently had a lot of capability. Well, there it is. The top 10, mate. Um, what a list. Some incredible aircraft there um, through that list there. Um, absolutely blown away by all those different stats that you've been able to provide on aircraft that some, you know, some were built back in the 30s and, and only six ever built. Some, you know, little toy seaplanes like the jet ski fly nano. It's uh, a great <laughs> list, mate. I know that you have one little bonus for us as well, and this ties into a little bit you're doing in the background uh, with some blog work. Right. So um, as a means of uh, raising a few bucks for my future airplane, I, uh, I started a blog uh, that people can use to tip me. If they, if they like what they're doing, if they, if they think that uh, you know, a, a, a daily write-up on, on crazy aviation history is worth, say, the price of a magazine subscription, they can go over to my blog and toss me a few bucks, and it unlocks uh, roughly a weekly uh, article that I put together. And my one of my most recent ones is a really crazy concept that I've only recently learned about uh, called a vertical float concept. And uh, it, it's just, you look at the picture here that I wish I could show you over a podcast, uh, and there are these, uh, in, in, in post-World War II years, they took a couple of uh, Martin Mariner seaplanes and um, they, they, they tried this new concept that would enable a seaplane to float out in open water and stay really stable without uh, pitching and, and, and rolling atop the, the surf. And uh, the motivation behind this was they wanted to, the U.S. military wanted to be able to go and monitor uh, areas of the northern Atlantic for Russian submarines. But what they found was they couldn't just send a seaplane out and have them land in open ocean and sit there and do their work because the crew was getting horribly sick uh, with the constant pitching and rolling of the, of the airplane. Uh, they couldn't focus, they couldn't concentrate on their jobs, and uh, it just wasn't working. So they, so the, the U.S. Navy decided to test this concept where they would extend these long, thin vertical tubes that, that went straight downward and um, would raise the airplane up just above the level of the surface of the water and uh, would create a stable platform where there was almost no movement uh of the airplane and accordingly the people inside could actually work without getting sick and they could focus and listen for for submarines now in the end uh sauna buoys were designed that could be dropped you know without a human and, and these remote sensors could be used to listen uh from more comfortable places but um but the the vertical float concept uh you, you look at it, it's just a crazy looking idea that that nobody ever talks about it was kind of a concept that's uh long been forgotten but i will post a uh a photo of it here coming up soon to uh, to show everyone and explain it and uh, i went into serious depth on my blog talking about it um so that that was the little bonus concept and again i wish we could show a photo over a, a podcast but you know here we are yeah well hopefully people are tied in with uh with looking at these photos uh through the posts that i'll do and i'm sure you'll you'll do a post as well there so um they'll be able to be able to listen and and look as well um but yeah, it's an incredible. There's so much infrastructure there 
that goes with this aircraft it just looks like you know how would the aircraft get airborne again with all this stuff or would it have to take it all off or what happens there yeah so the uh the the crazy photo that really catches your eye shows this uh stripe these striped tubes sticking down from this big seaplane and those tubes were permanent they were not designed to be flown and, and they were heavy metal objects that, that they were they were just test floats uh, but the uh, the idea was that a seaplane would have um, these long, thin vertical floats uh, folded up into a horizontal position for takeoff and for landing and for flight. And then after it touches down on the water, then the floats would be uh, extended into a vertical position. Uh, and then the airplane would sort of lift up out of the water and, and, and hover just above it on these long, thin floats. Uh, another concept was to have uh, inflatable vertical floats where after landing and coming to a stop, the airplane could uh, pump uh, water, actually, is I think what they use initially to extend these long, thin um pneumatic these rubber floats that would go down to the water and uh with the same result the airplane would then kind of lift up and, and would float uh, almost stationary without much movement at all above the surface of the water um and uh, after that testing um it, it, the, the idea never went anywhere so uh, i guess there just hasn't been enough need for a perfectly still seaplane at rest on the water to justify the cost of uh, development yeah, no, it's 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 an outrageous concept, I reckon. But um, I guess it had its purpose back then. Um, but um, yeah, looking back now, you're just like, what the hell were they thinking? But exactly, yeah, diff- different world. But um, yeah, mate. Well, that that brings us to the end there. The the ten uh, most unique seaplanes that you've ever seen, and uh, with a little bonus concept there as well. So thanks very much, Jason, for joining me on the show today and and talking all things random seaplanes and unique <laughs> seaplanes um hope you've enjoyed it mate well absolutely it's been a pleasure and uh you know at this point i think moving forward the goal is going to be to uh to get in contact with dornier and with Beriev uh and then shinmaiwa to get uh the mallard guy up to test these airplanes <laughs> so we know how well they perform so you know exactly. everyone out in uh, podcast yep. land if you have any connections let us know we need to get them in the cockpit Yep, exactly. And, uh, you know, the Converse Sea Dart, you said there's a few of those in museums around the world. So let's let's get one out. Let's let's take it for a burn. Get it on the water. You know, it, under the cover of darkness, maybe, you know, they won't notice it being gone for a couple of years and uh, we can <laughs> refurbish it and use your lottery money. And uh, boy, the, what, a, what an air show display that would be. Exactly. Yeah. No, mate, it's been an absolute pleasure, mate. Really enjoyed um, having you on the step. All right. Thanks for having me. It's been a good time. And that's the show for today, folks. That was one of the most fun episodes I've done so far. Thanks to Jason for putting in a lot of work researching these aircraft and coming up with an incredible list of unique seaplanes we would all love to get our hands on. Now is the time to share the episode, tell a friend and review with Apple Podcasts. The road to 100 written reviews is well underway and let's keep it going, folks. Don't forget, if you would like to support the show, join me on Patreon and see the show grow further into the future. Thanks again to the Seaplane Pilots Association for their sponsorship and support. Until next time, everyone, thanks for coming on The Step. <laughs>